you would be hard-pressed to choose a word other than the word covenant. Um, Whenever God makes relationships with people in the Bible, he uses this word covenant always, every time as he works his way through. And so God really describes himself to his creation before and after sin entered the world, before and after Jesus um, conquers sin through the cross, through covenant and a covenant relationship. So much so, you know, in our days, the word evangelical is starting to mean less um, and less. It's starting to be more of just something you're supposed to put on your church sign if you're not Catholic, rather than what it really used to mean, which is a focus on the gospel. So much so, I think it's time to kind of revive the word covenant and describe that as what kind of Christians we are. We are covenant Christians. We believe we are in a covenant relationship with our God. And so covenant's a big term for us, a big theme. Um, It's also for studying the Bible. But the illustration I want you to use um, in thinking about where we're going this morning and, and briefly is the illustration of augmented or virtual reality. I think, I think we're, we're very clearly headed in that direction. Um, you know, for, for people who saw, like me, old fuddy-duddies who saw the first iPhone, um, I can remember a kid in my youth group had the first iPhone, um, and we said, like, why would you want it to have your music on your phone? Like, that is the stupidest device that we have ever seen. We gave him such a hard time um, in, in the iPhone 1 um, when it came out. Um, but now, watching people walk around um, with, with their phones literally strapped to their faces um, so that the screen is all that you see. Like, you see nothing out here, like blinders all the way around. And so that would be virtual reality. Um, augmented reality is when they take the, the, the camera on the other side and take the image out here and then put the image from the phone. And so you might be looking around the gym of Culpeper Christian School, um, but you also, in addition to seeing your congregation, you see you know, Pokemon animals bouncing around um, wherever or whatever the direction it goes in, that is certainly where it's going. My contention is that what technology is doing um, and what really commercial media is doing is that they are a very poor attempt, a very childish, a very low-tech attempt at doing what God has already done through the gospel and through what he created in the world. And so we believe in Christians that there is you know, the, the physical world, the stuff that we see, the things that we smell, the chairs that we sit in. But beyond the physical world, there is also a spiritual world that God also created. And that spiritual world not only has spirits and demons in it, but also we have souls that are not physical, that are very much a part of who we are. We are both soul and body, and that the redemption that God has wrought for us through Jesus Christ one day will save both our bodies and our souls at either um, our resurrection or at the Jesus' resurrection. Um, so... So we very much already live in an augmented reality. Um, We don't have Pokemon characters bouncing around in here, but there's a very real spiritual world, and there's a very real God who's interacting with us in our world. And what the Bible is doing through the Holy Spirit that's within Christians is it's taking an augmented reality that is the true reality of covenant living, and it's placing it over top of our regular lives. And so God, through the Spirit, is convincing you that what you see and what you touch is not all there is. God is convincing you that the lies that you like to believe are not true. So when you tell yourself, I can't be saved, or God's grace has run out, or there's no more hope for me, 
the augmented reality of the true world God brings to bear through the Holy Spirit. And so in a very real way, we don't strap our phones to our face. We have our Bibles and we are seeing the world through the truth in scriptures. And if we were to summarize what's going on in the world, it is that word covenant. And so all I want you to leave today is, is, is being convinced maybe a little bit more to start thinking about your life in terms of God's covenant and, gra- and grace already at work in you um, through Jesus and through his resurrection. And to do that, we're going to look briefly at three little experiences of Abraham. Um, now, if, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Genesis 1 and half of Genesis 2, things are going great. Like, so great, perfect, great, awesome. Halfway through Genesis 2, things go very, very badly. And through Adam, sin and death enter into the world, and the world is broken through sin and death. And then God allows things to play out a little bit more. So you you might not be convinced by Genesis 3 that things have gone badly. And then you read Genesis 4, and you're like, oh. You read Genesis 5, and you're like, oh. You read Genesis 6, and it just gets worse and worse and worse as you go through. And you get to Genesis 11, and you're like, this is just not going to end well for humanity. Genesis 12, God decides to start over again. And God decides to start speaking his words of grace and his words of mercy and his words of promise and to do over what he started in the garden to create a people to be his very own and to live with him in covenant eternal blessing forever. And that's where we pick up on in Genesis 12. Actually, going to go a little bit further back than that. And so the first thing that I want you to see as we consider the augmented covenant reality of um, our gracious God is that Abraham received a gracious and extraordinary covenant calling. And so if you want to turn your Bibles, you can. If not, it'll be on the screen um, to my left and your right. We're starting at the end of Genesis um, 11. And um, here we go. There we go. With verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Uh, Terah is Abram's dad. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Um, and Haran died in the presence of his father Terah and the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, so Abram's nephew, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. 
When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Um, Since this is the the reading of God's word, why don't we pray before we consider it. Father, thank you for this word, um, for considering this reality that you've put us in, truer than anything that we could strap to our faces. And so through the Holy Spirit, would you show us the grace of your word through Jesus Christ, that we would leave more convinced of what is really true, that you would call us out of the shade and shadow and fog of the life we so often live in, and to the glory of your gracious promises in Christ Jesus We pray in his name. Amen. So the first thing that I I want you to see um, is that there was really nothing special about Abraham um, when he was called. We we live in a day of the special. And so if you're going to be looking for a job, you need to update your resume or your CV. And you're probably going to take longer than 10 minutes um, for that. More than that, and sometimes now, even if you're applying to a college, you not only need to fill out a college application, but sometimes you're making YouTube videos of all of the great things that you've done. We, we are in an age where we as individuals feel an incessant need to prove what is great about us so people will hire us, people will like us, people will, will marry us. It's, it's getting crazy. Like I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, that, that Hallie and I were married and I proposed before the age of like YouTube. I see all of these like, you know, all of a sudden you need to have this like dance break out in the middle of your proposal and somebody needs to come in with like a helicopter with, you know, jumping out with someone with a parachute and comes in with a ring, you know, inside of a dog's mouth and they're like just gets crazier and crazier and crazier. Like in order just to ask somebody to marry you, you've got to have this super awesome, I'm the greatest person, the most viral video ever. And we feel the pressure of that. And so we tend to read the Bible back through that. And you may have a high regard for Abram and Abraham. And you should, but not because Abraham was really awesome, but because he had a really awesome God who out of the blue simply said, you. And that's what it says. Just out of the blue, you. Remember, everything's going bad. Genesis 11, everything's going just horrible. And all of a sudden, with like no reason why, I mean, who knows how many people were on the planet at that point, if certainly thousands. And out of the thousands of people, all of a sudden, the, Moses starts recording. So yeah, there was Terah. Um, Terah had a son, Abram. He had a brother, Haran, and Haran died. And so you'll see how Abram starts taking care of his brother's son, his nephew, Lot, later on. Uh, But you start to see, well, well, there's nothing special about Abram. If God is starting over after the horror of the first 11 books of the Bible, you would expect there to be, you know, a little bit of a YouTube video, a little bit of a CV, a little bit of a resume, where, you know, out of the mass of humanity, this is why God chose this one. This is what commends Abram. And not only does he not have anything to commend him, it mentions something that he he has that doesn't commend him. You know, God wants to, actually two things, God wants to create a land for him, but he's kind of like a wandering homeless guy. Like they leave from Ur of the Chaldeans, and they're supposed to go to Canaan, but they stop off in Haran, 
And in fact, later on, one of the ways the, the Old Testament will talk about Abram to convince the people of God what I'm saying to you, there's a liturgy where it says, remember your forefather Abraham, who was a wandering Aramean. So again, like if you're looking for someone to create a nation with, maybe they should start with a little bit of property. You know, maybe you should own a few places before we start expanding on his real estate and empire and create the people of God. And not only that, his wife is barren. They have no children. So again, it's kind of like, well, maybe we should choose a couple that has a lot of kids and is proven to have a lot of kids because we're going to be creating a kind of big family that needs to grow into a nation. But instead, God's like, okay, this random guy who doesn't have any property and doesn't have any children. Like... That's kind of a crazy God that we have who does that kind of thing and chooses those kind of people. If you were writing the Bible, you wouldn't write it that way. Like, if you were just making up this great story, like, you would come up with, like, this rags and riches story, you know, this diamond in the rough is, is Abram, and he's, he's really misunderstood, but he's this, this awesome guy that nobody's realized, but it, that's not what he says. God just says, no, I'm, I'm going to call you. You don't have any property. Your wife has not been able to have children. You have no children on your own. You. That's amazing. That's amazing. And that's not the way that we think that reality overlays with our reality. And that's why we need to read the Bible through the lens of the Holy Spirit in the covenant grace of our God. God just says, covenant, you. It's almost like Abraham's like, I, who? Me? Okay. And just wanders into it. He, Moses is writing the Bible. He's writing this, these first five books of the Bible, and Moses is well after Abram. There is no thought that Abram even knew who this God was. Like, maybe some things have been passed down from Adam and Eve throughout the generations, but for the most part, we just believe, like, this God just shows up to Abraham and says, I'm just choosing you to build a people and a nation out of. That's amazing. That's an amazing experience. I'm just thinking about the surprise of Abram and saying, oh, amazing. Me, with all the things that are kept me. I don't, I don't have to submit a resume to you. I don't have to submit a CV. I need to have, like, guys jumping out of helicopters to convince you that I'm a good enough guy to, like, make it within your covenant kingdom. It's like, no, just, in fact, your lack is the reason that I'm choosing you. The, the things that are notable about you is that you really don't commend anything of yourself. I am going to get glory, and I've chosen to love you, and I've chosen to glorify my name through you. So really, it is your lack that commends you. That's not the way our world works. You don't walk into a job interview and say, I am wildly unqualified for this job. You know, I'm pretty sure I'll be out in six months. I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, <laughs> they're not going to hire you. Like that, that's not how it works. Um, so it, it's a, I mean, you, don't, you don't walk into a marriage proposal and say, you're going to have to be so gracious with me. Like, if anyone needs patience, like within a marriage, like, you are going to have to be the spouse that has the greatest amount of patience in the world. That's not be noble and chivalrous. So that's it, not how it works. But within God's covenanting, that's how our God works. And that's how he engages with us. And that's how he started with this covenant people. So um, that was the first experience of Abraham. The second experience of Abraham is that God made these outrageous, extraordinary, gracious promises to Abraham. And so we'll read about some of those in Genesis um, 17. We've already read um, a little bit um, about them. And so I'll, I'll read on. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. 
walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring. And he goes on to describe the covenant of circumcision, the outward sign. And so we see between Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, four amazing promises that God gives to Abraham. The first thing he says to him is, I'm going to give you children, and not just children. I'm going to give you a family legacy, a lineage of faith. Not just, you know, you're going to sit around the table and have a bunch of grandkids come back. But there's going to be a lineage of faith. There are going to be a ton of kids that are going to come from you. It's going to grow into a people who believe in me and walk in my ways. The second promise is you're going to have a place. All of us were designed to have a place. So if you hate moving... Like if you just detest, like moving from one house to another house, that is like ingrained into your spiritual DNA. God designed you to have a rootedness and a place and to be fixed and to be a location of absolute and eternal blessing. And God says, hey, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. The third thing he says is, I'm going to be God and I'm not going to leave. I'm going to be your covenant God to you and to your children and to your children's children. And so this relationship that God is setting up is going to be an eternal relationship. He's not a stop-in God. He's not a fast-food God. He's not, I'm going to stop in and see how it goes. God is unilaterally covenanting with Abraham to be his God and the God of his children and the God of his children's children. And fourthly, that Abraham is going to be a blessing to other nations. Not only is a nation going to come from him, but the nations around him are going to be blessed. Again, these are extraordinary blessings. Right now, like, he has his hiking hammock in the land of Canaan. Like, that's amazing. Right now, he's had one kid, and weren't great circumstances about him having that kid. That was not the kid of, of promise. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so these promises speak again to his lack and to where his pain is. I mean, his wife is unable to have children. There's a lot of pain there and them, of course, wanting to have children throughout their life. He's wandering. It doesn't mean property. Like, he, he wants a sense of fixedness. He's with this God, and this God is an amazing God, but is this God going to go away someday? And much less, like, he wants to be generous to others. And is he ever going to be generous to others when he has so little himself? And so God comes in and not only says, you, you're, you're my people, you're my God, I'm starting with you, but we're going to do extraordinarily gracious and amazing things through you. Very, very literally, God is going to change the world through Abraham. As we see in our third experience to Abraham, not only he had a gracious calling, and he also got gracious promises, but he had a righteousness that was a righteousness that God gave to him, imputed to him, counted to him, not his own. So those promises 
are not going to come true because Abraham gets his act together. In fact, what we see is that Abraham kind of messes up a good bit. And so, you know, two notable ones happen within the verses we're reading. You know, he goes down to Egypt, and what happens is he realizes that he's, you know, he's got a really beautiful wife, and uh, the Egyptians, you know, might want to, you know, kill him and marry his wife. And so he's like, you know, tell people that, that you're my sister. You know, guys, if, if you find yourself in a restaurant and, you know, some guys come up and start hitting on your wife, like, that's not the moment to say, yeah, guys, she's my sister. Just, just throwing that out there. Like, that, that, that is not courageous, that is not manly, that is not what, not what you want to do. You know, later on in Abraham's story, he's getting impatient. God's given these promises. God said, you're going to have kids. He's taking them out on the seashore. He's taking them to the stars. You're going to have a ton of kids. Abraham gets impatient. It's like, well, I mean, I guess maybe I should kind of just make this thing happen. And decides rather than having a child with Sarah, his wife, he has a child through adultery with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. And so again, not the guy who's showing a lot of faith. Um, guy who's, who's committing you kind of you know, gross sin and mistrust in God. So does Abraham have this example of righteousness? Does he come in and just you know, beat his chest? You know, maybe we think, well, he just needed his shot. He had nothing to commend him. But once he was saved, well, then he really got his act together and started living, you know, in a, in a really righteous and holy way and really showed that the covenant blessings he earned through his behavior. And no, that, that wasn't what happened. And we read about that in Genesis 15 in the description. And so Genesis 15, 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the, area, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to, he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, and a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kizites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. 
So, what's happening here is that God is showing Abraham the source of his righteousness, and he's doing it through a covenant that Abram would have been very familiar with. And so the way that they literally, the word was cut a covenant, um, and if you were making a covenant with somebody else, um, you get animals together, and um, you would sacrifice the animals, and you would cut the animals in half, and you see some of the animals listed that were cut in half, you'd put half of the animal on one side, you put half of the animal on the other side, and then you and the person with which you're making the covenant would talk as you walked through the pieces what you were going to do as a part of the covenant and what they were going to do as part of the covenant. You know, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. Well, okay, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And as you walked through the pieces, you were illustrating that if I renege on my side of the covenant, let me be like these animals. If you renege on your side of the covenant, then you be like these animals. And so, you know, I, I think probably the last time that, that you signed a document, you know, there weren't like bloody animals everywhere, but this would have been very familiar for Abraham. This wasn't something that was out of um, the ordinary. The unique thing about what's happening here is that God himself only passes through the pieces. Abraham sets it all up. He thinks he knows what's going on. You know, God hasn't shown up yet. There are vultures. It says he's like shooing away the vultures. Vultures are trying to land on his covenant, you know, in the midst of the day. It comes towards night. God still hasn't shown up. Wondering we're going to cut this covenant. Um, and all of a sudden, God knocks Abram out. And through his dream, God shows him himself, an image of God, and the, the, the pot and the fiery torch. And God himself goes through. What's supposed to happen is Abraham and God would go through. Only God goes through which means that God was making a unilateral covenant with Abram. God was saying, if God doesn't fulfill the covenant, let God be like these pieces. Abram, if you don't fulfill the commands, your children don't fulfill the commands of this covenant, then let God be like these pieces. Like, just to get the crazy of this, just to get enter into you know, this crazy world, like uh, maybe some of you have bought a home, you know, you're with your realtor, you go to closing day, really big day, and if I even say closing day right now, you have the images, you know, again, not split animals, you know, pile of papers, you know, blue pins on either side, you know, kind of closed, stuffy room with, you know, artwork on the wall they probably bought, bought from Target, like the pictures coming together from you of like how you, you do a covenant today um, to sign, sign a mortgage. Um, now imagine like you come in, you sit down, banker, mortgage, title guy, they're all there, um, and, and you say, you know, excuse me, I need to use the restroom. You step out, you come back in, and they're like, all right, we're done here. I, we haven't done anything. And the banker says, yeah, I've, I've signed both sides. I've signed my side and your side. We're done, we're done here. House is yours. Don't worry about it. So, well, what, what, what if I don't pay my mortgage? The bank says, yeah, yeah, we're on the hook for that too. Like, so again, like, right now you're like, there is no banker in the world who would do that. Like, you're like, that is just so crazy. Um, some of you are having, like, that does not compute moment. Like, I, I've never heard bankers ever. Like, if anything, they're trying to get more of your money, you know, in, in what you're trying to do. And that's the crazy of this. That's the crazy of our God. Our God says, yeah, Abram, you're righteous. He's like, but, but I, I sin and I'm, I'm going to sin. He's like, yeah, yeah, you're righteous, but I'm... I'm not, I'm not doing what righteousness requires, and I can't pay off my debts of sin. And God's saying, yeah, I've, I've taken care of that. I've signed for you 
on that. I've signed both sides of the document. We're done here. You can live by grace. That, that's amazing. The kind of grace that, like, this is Genesis 12. Like, like that's, that's early in the Bible. Like, that's amazing grace. And the way the Bible works, this side is God bringing about those four promises. It's about that gracious God calling people by grace, speaking over them amazing, unbelievable promises, declaring them in a righteous a way, declaring them righteous in a way that will cost God Himself becoming the sacrifice. That's crazy. And again, if, if you don't believe me, this isn't just like the cute story where I say at the end, you know, be like Abraham, because wasn't that fun? Isn't like where you watch Rudy and get all fired up and go in the yard and throw a football because it's, you, you kind of feel like Rudy. Uh, let, me, let me show you Galatians 3. Um, we'll start in um, verse 1 and read half of Galatians. And um, you'll see where the, the connection is in this passage. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by covenant, or, uh, covenant obedience, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's quoting Genesis 12:5 in Galatians 3:6 to show that God's people are always redeemed by a righteousness that is not their own, but imputed and counted to them by God. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so, right now, in the gymnasium of Culpeper Christian School, some few thousand years later, God is bringing to bear the fruition of the promises that he made to Abram all those years, to get, years ago in you. So if your faith is in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, Paul says very clearly, you are the children of Abraham that God promised to him. You are. Your skin might not be olive colored, might not be from over in the Middle East, you might not be able to trace your lineage back to one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but you are more 
a child of Abraham, if your faith is in Christ, than someone who is ethnically Jewish. And so God, through Christ Jesus, has brought all the promises to bear. Children, here they are. Place, we are in Christ. The location of our blessing is being in Jesus, and one day to be in the new heavens and the new earth with him. God is our God and will always be God because God has secured a righteousness that cannot be undone by us and by our sin because God has paid both sides through the sacrifice of Jesus who did become like the animals, split in two on the cross and raised a new life to atone for our sins and provide the CV, the resume, the YouTube video, the everything that we need to be made righteous before the Lord God is ours in Christ Jesus and we are now becoming a blessing to the nations. And so we go out as missionaries to save people who are not originally, originally ethnically Jewish to take the gospel into every area of the world that that last promise of God would continue to bear fruit as people profess, profess faith in Jesus and come to faith through him. We have an amazing God and we are a part of an amazing story. You are saved by grace. Your sins are forgiven. The Spirit is yours. You are in Christ Jesus. Right now, God is working this great movement within history on Virginia Avenue and on the south side of Culpeper and in Fauquier and in Orange and in Madison. He is doing the great work. Whether you see it or recognize it or not, every time you share your faith with someone, he's doing that. When you read the Bible with your children, he's doing that. When you marry someone and covenant with them to live a life that displays the gospel of Jesus in a Christian covenant marriage, God is bringing those promises together. But it is so easy for us to forget. It is so easy for us just to live our lives throughout the normal. And I think that it's going to get harder especially if we start strapping iPhones to our face. And that's why Christian worship is so important. That's why what we do is so important. That's why God's word is so important, because this is the true. This is the real. This is about grace and holiness and righteousness and not Nintendo trying to get in our pockets. This is the true overlay of the kingdom of God that according to Jesus is coming and one day will be fulfilled and his great second return, which will come. This is the beautiful story that we get to live. It doesn't look like it, which is why we need God's word and we need the spirit, we need one another, we need to sing, we need to pray, we need to do it every seven days. Because longer than seven days, we're gonna forget and start believing everything the world wants us to think. And so we gather together every seven days. This is it, this is reality, this is really what's going on. To encourage each other, let's pray to our Lord God, let's worship him as the risen king. All right, now rinse and repeat, do it again. Um, share our faith, be missionaries from you know, Monday to Saturday, gather back around, let's worship and rest. Okay, missionary time again, Monday to Saturday, until Jesus comes back. It's the beautiful, wonderful grace of our God. And the reason you're a Christian this morning is because God wanted to be glorified. It wasn't because you had a great resume, it wasn't because you were first on the kickball team. It was because he chose people who have lack. He chose people whose weaknesses highlight the difficulty of God accomplishing his promises. Like it wasn't that you had like, you know, 10% sin and other people had, you know, 60%. It's like, I'll choose the 10% and you know, just kind of be easier, just kind of push them over. It's that you displayed a definitive lack of righteousness before your conversion and God decided to save you 100% by his grace, so that if anybody asks you how in the world did you make it into God's kingdom, you can say, 
all I can say is I'm amazing God. Like there is nothing about me that puts me in here. He just decided to say, yeah, you. And then spoke these amazing promises to me and put me a part of this amazing family. Like who has a God like that? Like we went into this mortgage room and he signed both sides of the document when I was in the bathroom. Like I just, I, I don't, like, this God is insane in his grace and how he treats me. I am, I am awed to worship because of who he is in, in my life. So that's our encouragement this morning. I want to pray for us and then we can conclude this song. Father, thank you for being so amazingly, insanely, unnervingly gracious to us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. You are the hero. You are the one who gets glory. You are the one in which we boast. You're the one who has the resume, the CV, the viral video. You are the one of all glory and all praise. You are the one that we want to fix our eyes on all of our days. So Lord, would you use regular, ordinary Christian worship, a local church living their life together with one another to accomplish these extraordinary things that you do just because you're our God and decided to love people like us. We pray and ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't we stand and sing?